Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. I wanted to start this episode by saying that when we wrapped this recording, I told our guest, Ewan Wolf, that this was one of the most important conversations I could remember having had. And here at AHA, we have had some feedback in the past, some recent past, on some of our content where apparently some people feel that we should, and I'm quoting, just stick to the medicine and not talk about topics like diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, because animals don't care what we look like or who we love as long as we show up and do our jobs. And because I have this platform, I wanted to say here that the well-being, the human rights of the people who practice veterinary medicine and of the people who bring their pets to us for care are central to providing good care. Creating a welcoming and inclusive space for all of them is as important as providing antibiotics for an infected wound, because to not do so is to cause harm. So for anyone thinking that AHA's role is only to talk about best clinical practices, um, you know, in our opinion, in my opinion, you cannot practice at your best unless you feel safe and seen. I hope you get as much out of listening to you and as I did. And I also wanted to offer a quick content warning. We do touch on some heavy topics in this conversation, including the mention of suicide. After you listen, please go sign the Gender Identity Bill of Rights and check out the Gender Diversity Guide at pridevmc.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm here with a special guest today, Dr. Ewan Wolf. Welcome to Central Line. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I, um, I've been actually hearing your name for a long time, and um, this is the first chance that we're getting to actually meet, and I feel really lucky to have this opportunity. Um, before we get started, though, would you please give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you came to be here? My name is Ewan Wolf. I know you've already said that. They, them pronouns, um, just that I've said that. Um, I was originally from Washington, D.C., um, and to kind of cut out a lot in between, I ended up uh, going to grad school before vet school in vertebrate paleontology, studying dinosaur diseases. And also, so cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and then I went to UW-Madison for vet school and then actually did my rotating internship there and part of a specialty internship in oncology. Um, and then I started my internal medicine residency at uh, Massey University and then uh, came back to the States, finished my residency at Purdue, and then did a fellowship in uh, nephrology and neurology um, at Purdue as well. Um, and then I bounced around a little bit um, to some different practices, um, again, just to keep things short. Um, and now I am in Portland, Oregon, which we'll talk about probably a little bit more later. And I should say, for uh, for station recognition, at Blue Pearl Northeast Portland, which is a relatively new practice in the Hollywood district. Awesome. Um, I love Portland. I've been there a couple, a few times for my acupuncture certification, and so got a little time to explore, and it's a cool town. Um, it's a very nice place. Weird in a good way. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, well, so you're certainly not afraid of moving around. I think it's safe to say. Yep, that's very true. We have been, I think this was our like eighth move or something like that in the last 20 years. So it's, we've been a lot of different places. Yeah, that's a fair bit. Do you like moving? Do you feel like there's a place that's like always home to you or is home kind of where you are and your family is? I think, I think home is where, where I am and where my family is. Yeah. Um, I think we would love to get to the point where we're not living this nomadic lifestyle anymore. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we don't have to move again anytime soon. Yes. I hope that for you also. Um, so vertebrate paleontology, I have to say that, um, so the, the thing that motivated me to reach out to you at this time, well, there are two things. One is the subject matter that we're going to talk about because it's yeah. timely with an article that's coming out in one of our publications. But, um, the other thing is that, uh, Ben Williams, who's our editorial director, um, he is the guy who basically makes Jaha and Trends Magazine happen <laughs> with, oh, nice. with help, but he's kind of a magician and like he waves his hands and then two magazines happen. Um, <laughs> nice. And he's a dinosaur guy for sure. 
um, like oh, cool. really into dinosaurs. And he was like, you should have you and Wolf on because <laughs> they're <a> vertebrate <laughs> paleontologists. And I was like, oh my God, I can ask what the favorite dinosaur is because I've always wanted to ask somebody that I met, like, you know, who doesn't want to talk about their favorite dinosaur, right? But like, I, I, that just doesn't come up in conversation. That's that's very true. It should come up in conversation more often. It should, yeah. I th- maybe I'll just start asking guests that. Like, instead of stuff like, what's something people wouldn't guess about you? I'm just going to ask them about their favorite dinosaur. I mean, it's it's simple. And usually people have an answer. And if they don't have an answer, uh, I mean, it's a very accepting space. But they should probably come up with one. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you learn something about somebody, too, if they don't have a favorite dinosaur, I feel like. Right. That tells me a lot right. about someone not being judgmental. Just saying, Ewan, what is your favorite dinosaur? <laughs> so I would say that I have really two. Um, so one of them is going to sound really cliched, um, which is Tyrannosaurus rex. Um, and I think that's just because I've, I've handled a lot of Tyrannosaurus rexes from different collections and uh, collected various and sundry parts of T-Rexes and oh, been so at jealous. a couple of T-Rex stick sites. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, the, the material is very cool. And, you know, I was just actually visiting a friend of mine at the Burke Museum. He's the lead preparator there. Um, and uh, he was saying that it's amazing how these things have lasted all this time. And you wouldn't think so. But there are so many incredibly delicate parts of a T-Rex skull for this just massive thing that, you know, chomped through everything. Um, it, it, it's They're very, very cool. Um, but then the other uh, dinosaur that I really like a great deal is Microraptor Gooey. Um, and that is kind of an, an oldie, but a goodie at this point. I think it probably was described 20 some odd years ago. But Microraptor has wing feathers on its legs in addition to its arms, which is obviously not a successful innovation. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, I think it's really cool. They were just cool little animals. I mean, somebody had to try it out. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there's a researcher out of Texas who does a lot of uh, reconstructions of flight and stuff named um, Shankar Chatterjee, uh, Dr. Shankar Chatterjee. And uh, he did this talk that I went to once, which was wild, sort of reconstructing them as having like a biplane style of flight, (laughs) which I don't think anybody else agrees with. But it was such a cool, like, set of illustrations. I was like, this is really neat. I can, I can, I can get with, you know, dinosaurs that were biplanes. That's a pretty cool idea. That is pretty awesome. And like, I never really thought about that with paleontology, but you can kind of dream, right? And say like, what if this was how it worked? And then see if you can find evidence that shows that that's how it worked. Right. I think, you know, uh, as as a practicing internist, uh, vertebrate paleontology prepared me very well in some ways because... There are some people who absolutely need to have like a finite answer on things. And as a paleontologist, you're just sort of used to the fact that (laughs) anything that you say could be contradicted later. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do the best that I can. And uh, we'll adjust things as we find out more information. And I feel like sometimes internal medicine is very similar. And you have to like kind of enter this mindfulness space where you're like, I think this is what it is now. And we're going to do the best job that we can. I Uh, love that. That's such a good comparison and like in two seemingly very disparate things. And yes, I like to say that I'm, I was an art history major. And I like I, to say that my background in art history and my work in museums prepared me to be a vet too, because I like medicine. I like medicine also is more medicine than surgery. And, um, and I think it's because I didn't have a problem explaining to someone that I might not really know what's going on, but here's my best guess and we're going to do what we can to find out and making it sound good because you get a lot of practice sort of talking about things that you're not really hundred percent sure about in a liberal arts education. (laughs) Anyway, well, thank you for indulging me um, and talking about dinosaurs for a bit. Um, I'm sure that we're we're a lot of nerds in this field. So I'm sure there are a lot of dinosaur nerds um, listening who are very, who are actually going to check out the dinosaur. I should hope so. Um, okay. So the other thing that prompted me to reach out to you, um, besides having the ability to do so, thanks to Judy Rose, our learning programs manager, um, 
is that we have an article coming out in Trends in March. And by by the time this airs, I believe it will be out. Um, and it's talking about the gender pay gap. And basically, you know, a lot of the research that's been um, accumulated over many years in differences in how men and women are paid and treated in the workplace and the benefits they get and the flexibility they're offered and stuff like that. And um, it's it's really fascinating. It's a great article. Um, Dr. Sam Morello is one of the subject matter experts in there. And I know yep. she's been doing so much work in this field. Um, yep. Really interesting stuff. But it occurred to me when I was reading it, you know, that there's a section in it that talks about um, how we just don't have a lot of data about, um, you know, about what gender equality actually means and how it looks in the workplace for non-binary trans folks and people who just don't identify as man or woman. Um, And I feel like that's a question that I hadn't heard asked very much. And so I wanted to ask it. Um, And I wanted to just lead in by asking you a little bit about what your experience has been like in the veterinary community um, sure. and whether that, that sheds any light on this issue for you. So uh, let me, let me start off on the kind of first side of things talking about the the lack of information. So I think that there are a number of problems that we're facing and this is something that I've certainly talked to people about previously. So um, depending on what study you read, up to 40% of Gen Z is from the LGBTQ community. Um, and of that 40%, likely a quarter of them are non-binary. Um, and when you consider that the average age of a trans man coming out for the first time is around 23 Um, And the average age for coming out for a trans woman is around more like 28 or 29. And the fact that a lot of our statistics are looking at recent graduates or students, we are going to miss a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to miss a lot of people for a number of reasons. To some extent, um, there are two major barriers. So one barrier is the coming out stuff that I alluded to. And the other barrier is that if you don't ask the right questions, you don't get the right answers. So if your question is male, female, prefer not to say, or male, female, another gender not listed here, that's going to draw a very different response than if you have a non-binary answer in addition to that. And I would say that there is... um, there is a good argument for saying male, female, transgender man, transgender woman, um, another gender not listed here or prefer not to say. Um, I think that you will find some degree of conflict as to how people want to address taking a census of people who are trans because there are quite a few people who are trans who would prefer to just identify as being male or female because they are male or female. Um, And in some cases, people are also non-binary and trans. You can design things to be incredibly inclusive, though, where you can say, have people click all boxes that apply. And then I think you start to get some really rich data, especially if you can you add things like a gender, gender non-conforming, gender fluid, stuff along those lines. I think that the more inclusive categories you offer people, the more likely you are to get that data. And I also think you need to be doing a census of people five or 10 years out from vet school and vet tech school, because that's going to give you a much better idea with trans people as to who is actually trans. Um, If you only collect that data when people are young, then you miss a lot of people from Gen Z, um, from um, the millennial generation, from uh, Gen X even, who have taken years um, to come out as being part of the gender diverse community. That's, that's stuff I never thought of. You know, I'm just excited when I take a survey or, you know, fill out a piece of paper or something online and it's, and it gives an option besides male or female. Um, Because I feel like when we were growing up, we probably hardly ever saw that. Um, Right. 
But it didn't even occur to me, you know, as a person who fits neatly into the female category and always has identified that way, um, and other people identified me that way as well, it never occurred to me that more categories and more categories would actually, and allowing people to select all that they identified with would be um, even possible. And that makes right. total sense. Um, and I, why wouldn't we want the more, the most specific and informative data that we could get? So it's a really interesting point. Well, I think it's important. I also think that there has to be a way of anonymizing that. That's uh, making anonymous. I think I just invented a new word. I think anonymous should be, be a word. It, yeah, but I hate I hate when I do that. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's got to be a way of making that part of the demographic data anonymous. Yeah. Or again, you're going to lose a lot of people who would enter their information. And while I recognize that one of the things that we say very commonly is that the population within the veterinary profession is not necessarily reflective of the population at whole, gender diversity knows no background. Gender diversity yeah. is everywhere. Yeah. So we can't really use the term underrepresented because there's no reason why the cross-section of gender diversity in veterinary medicine should be any different than in the general population. Um, correct. I, I would say we can use, we, so we can use the term underrepresented because we, regardless of how many people there are in the field, it's, it's always going to be an underrepresented minority. Like yes. the likelihood that we're going to have huge numbers of gender diverse people in the field is, it, we're, we're never going to have as many gender diverse people as we have cis people in the field, most likely. Maybe that'll come someday, you know, 30, 40 years from now. So I think that for a long time, there'll be an underrepresented minority. But when you do the numbers and you look at the numbers of applicants, if they were reflective of uh, society as a whole, then you'd be talking about thousands of people a year entering vet tech school and veterinary school and many thousands of people within the community who belong to the gender diverse community. And yet we just don't have a good handle on that information. Mm. Do you feel like in veterinary medicine, our attitudes toward the gender diverse community and gender diverse coworkers and clients are different than they are in sort of the general public and the world at large? Like, are we more tolerant, more accepting? Are we less so? And that could be anecdotal, you know, from your own experience. So I think that um, it runs the gambit. So I think that we have a large portion of the field that just hasn't thought about it. Mm -hmm. um, and like so many things, when people haven't thought about it, the initial reaction may be to not be inclusive. But I think once people start to think about it and they start to think about gender diverse people outside of abstract stereotypes or movie stuff or things that are being said in various and sundry memes that they may be sharing around, um, then I think people start to change their point of view. Um, and if I look at things like the Gender Identity Bill of Rights, the amount of support that has been building over the last two years for the Gender Identity Bill of Rights, I think is testament to people actually starting to think about the fact that there are actual human beings within the field who are gender diverse and that those people are no different than anyone else and worthy of respect and worthy of basic rights within the field. And I think like so many underrepresented minorities, the second that people start to rationalize them as human beings, just like themselves, then that instinct to immediately other people starts to wane. Um, and so I actually have significant hope for the veterinary profession that with ongoing efforts in education, we can be the most welcoming profession that there is. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I do feel like this profession in general is very accepting of, um, you know, I think a lot of veterinarians, at least I can't, I can't speak for other roles in the veterinary community because I've mostly been a veterinarian, but I mean, there are a lot of veterinarians that sort of identify as, as being different. Like they grew up 
being a little bit different from their friends or they are, you know, uncomfortable in certain situations because they feel different. And the feeling of being different, obviously, I don't know what it's like to feel different in the sense that a non-binary person might. Um, but I think a lot of us can identify with that feeling of, of standing out or not, not wanting to stand out because of the things that make us different. And that I think does lend us to be a little bit more accepting of people who we might view as a little bit different. Um, but you know, this, the climate now, um, you know, things are tense and what should be human rights, you know, what should be as simple as saying this person is a human and deserves the same rights that I have. Um, and to be treated with respect has become sort of political. And from what I understand, you have, uh, you know, you've had personal experience where that's affected your life and your choices about where to live and work. Absolutely. So I'm non-binary, as I've said before, uh, my husband is trans and we have a kid who's non-binary. And to keep things breathtakingly short, the Florida government and legislature and governor made it abundantly clear uh, in the beginning of 2022 in April that um, they would not allow um, children to be supported in uh, social transition or medical transition um, and uh, a bunch of other different rulings, you know, things like erasing LGBTQ history from teaching, uh, preventing teachers from discussing that a child had two parents of the same sex, um, you know, not allowing providers to use appropriate pronouns and names for kids and stuff along those lines, including school nurses. Um, and, and now there are additional things like outing children to the entire school if they want to use the restroom. Those sorts of things really lead to a uh, climate of hatred and heightened risk of violence that makes it unsafe to have a family stay there. And our concern, more so than anything else, was that the state might take the same steps that Texas had taken and start actually taking kids into the foster system and charging parents with felonies for supporting children, uh, trans kids, which I include being non-binaries under the same umbrella as um, uh, gender diversity as transgender. Um, and so I actually contacted Blue Pearl. Um, I sort of slept on it for the night after the April 20th health department notice came out. And I wrote this really long letter and said, look, I, I don't think it's safe for us to stay here anymore. And here's why. Um, and I was very fortunate that the company actually got back to me within five minutes of writing them. Um, uh, actually, Dr. Barr. Um, and uh, we sat down and talked and I ended up interviewing out in Portland and then they helped us move out there. We had our house on the market two weeks after that notice. Like we went through and cleaned everything up, started taking stuff to Goodwill. And within less than, let's see, April, May, June. So we were moved out of our house. We'd sold it and packed everything up and left on the 30th of June. So it was incredible. We left, we left without having a house on the other end. It was an incredibly fast exit. Um, so fast, in fact, that there were friends of ours who didn't even realize that we had left because we had been so busy packing everything rapidly. Um, but, you know, I was very fortunate in that Blue Pearl supported that move. Um, and by extension, Mars, because it was something that they discussed. Hey, Vet Med. I'm Jessica Sewell, and I'm a credential technician. We have a big problem. We're losing our people. Talented, knowledgeable, trained, passionate people. And we're not just losing them from our practices, from our hospitals. We're losing them completely. They're going to different professions. But why are they leaving? And I have my thoughts and my ideas, and I'm sure you guys do too. So let's talk about it. Let's all collaborate, talk, and work together to get these issues out and on the table. I love this profession more than anything in this world, and I love the people in it. And in my opinion, there's not a more exceptional group of people on the planet. I know you guys love it too. And I know there are people we've lost that still love it, and maybe they'd be willing to come back. But we need change, y'all. I get it, change does not happen fast, but the longer we resist it, 
And the longer we continue doing things a certain way, just because this is the way we've always done it, the more people we're going to lose. And it's not a secret that we already have a critical shortage. But what if we all work together to make change? All of us, veterinarians, veterinary technicians, veterinary assistants, CSRs, practice managers, everyone. What if we all dedicated the same effort to helping our people and helping each other as we dedicate to taking care of our patients and their humans every single day? The Veterinary Visionary Storytelling event starts on February 14th. Talk about what made you fall in love with veterinary medicine. What made you fall out of love with it? Why are you still in this profession? What's keeping you from leaving? Are you even thinking about leaving? Let's talk about it, Vet Med. You can learn more at veterinaryvisionaries.org. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And I, I'd moved myself last year um, in April, and it was a huge pain in the butt. And I, nobody would choose to move just because um, in that frame of time and to be feeling the feelings that you must have been at that time about of just fear and, um, and uncertainty. Uh, I just can't imagine what that must have been like. And it makes me think about all the people who cannot leave um, and who are in that environment and working potentially in our veterinary hospitals next to us. Yep. And we may not know that they're going through that. And so this is something that I hadn't told you I was going to ask, but I'm sure it's something that you've given a lot of thought to and wondering sure. like, you know, with the increase in support that you're seeing for the gender identity bill of rights, um, which AHA has signed is really, really, <laughs> as the other time that I saw you was when um, you showed up for, our CEO and CFO to sign that. And that was a great day. But I want to believe that inside of that hospital is a safe space. And that even if the outside climate is inhospitable, that gender diverse people say in Florida or Texas can still feel safe at their place of work. Do you think that's true? I think that, um, I think that being able to have a refuge inside your workplace is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And I want to stress to everyone listening that it is very much not just Florida and Texas. Mm -hmm. So um, it's well over half the states in the United States at this point. Um, within the first three weeks of um, 2023, there were 120 bills before the legislature, including things that banned um gender affirming care for adults up to the age of 26. Um, I think the reality is that people need a really high level of allyship right now. Um, they need it in States where they're being affected like this very badly. Um, I think making work as welcoming a place as possible is very important. I also think that having some, degree of flexibility to um, to ask people how they're doing to see what can be done for people. That's also very important. Basic human rights are essential and also um, a high level of allyship and, um, and emotional intelligence is essential right now too. Um, there have been moments in history when individual hate laws have been put into effect that the sum total of which resulted in the extinction of a community, the LGBTQ community included. And it's very difficult for people who are not being directly impacted to see that a community is being wiped out until it is gone. One thing that I want to say to people who are not necessarily paying attention because everybody has very busy lives. We deal with so much stress and anxiety and worry and burnout and compassion fatigue in the veterinary field. Everyone is under a lot of strain and I recognize that. And also I want to say that for those people who are not seeing this happen, they should understand that what is happening is um, communities are starting to be wiped out. I don't think that I've ever had a conversation where I just am speechless um, because as somebody who 
identifies very clearly as kind of a bleeding heart liberal. (laughs) And I cannot speak for all of AHA, so I want to make sure that everybody knows. Politically, I cannot speak for all of AHA, but I will say that at AHA and for myself, for sure, it just seems like such an obvious thing that everybody just deserves to live how they want to live and be who they are. And um, I just am trying to wrap my mind around what you said, and I, I just can't do it. And well, and and I want to say, for what it's worth, that um, I am not trying to make a political statement on this no. podcast. But what I do want to say, or I should say, and what I do want to say is that when you dehumanize individuals, when you villainize individuals when you do not permit permit their name to be said on a page, when you don't permit their history to be said, when you refuse to recognize their existence, their names, when you make it difficult for them to be employed, when you employ medical conscience so that they can die on the pavement outside of hospitals without people treating them, when you refuse to provide them with medical care that they need um, in order to stay healthy, um, when you impact their jobs so that they can be discriminated against, when you impact their schools so that they may not be to, able to be in an environment in which they can be themselves, there is one result of all of that. And, you know, I have said this before. I said it in one of the VMX talks um, that I gave a few weeks ago. Um, there was a leader for the Southeastern ACLU who said uh, for the LGBTQ rights there, who said that it's beginning to look a lot like the intent is for us not to exist. And I think that if you take the time to educate yourself, if you go and look at the ACLU has a bill tracker where they go through and they show all these things that are happening, there is only one interpretation that you can come to when trans healthcare and uh, is being removed gradually, like initially for little kids, then for adolescents, then for people up to 21, then for people up to 26. Like this is a gradual and insidious strategy. And it is very effective. I never expected to be a political refugee within my own country. And yet here we are. Yeah. It shouldn't be a question of politics at all. No. Um, And uh, and it's staggering to think about in those terms. Um, And these are not only, as you said, these are human beings. These are our colleagues. This could be somebody that you're standing next to at work um, and don't even know. And um, you shouldn't have to know that about them to respect them and, and treat them the way they want to be treated um, and call them by what they want to be called. And and I think that, you know, the shocking thing about all this, and I, I keep, saying this to as many people as I can, is that there's no cost involved in any of this. Um, This is just a matter of being kind and decent Mm -hmm. to other human beings because they're another human being with a different life than your own. And like enough of us spend time reading novels and watching movies and stuff along those lines that we know that there's this like human desire to understand how other people exist other people are more like us than we suppose. Yeah. Um, when we talked before this podcast, um, we talked last yes. week and you, we talked about how we hear more and more now about, um, you know, companies, even small practices making steps to introduce more um, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and programs and awareness. And, that's wonderful. Um, but there's a fourth letter there. There's a B at the end often. It's a DEIB initiative. And that B is the part that you said you really wanted to talk about. Um, wh- what makes belonging different from just discussions in general about diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I feel like, and I, I haven't actually said this before, so hopefully this metaphor works. But I feel like belonging is to DEI what, you know, Michelin two or three star food is to cooking. Um, There is a certain degree to which excellent food 
is beyond the control of the chef. Someone has to come and have that food and appreciate that it's really, really good and want to come back in order for people to succeed. And you don't have to be a five-star chef in order to, to, um, to succeed. You can have, you know, uh, you can have a stand somewhere and have people who want to come back. You can, you know, make fries in your front yard. I, I used to grow up going to a pit barbecue in Maryland and oh. they were grilling stuff there. And it was, it was outstanding. And I'm sure they were never in any sort of book for anything. Right. They Definitely they not getting inspected. <laughs> right. They're not getting inspected or, you know, but belonging is something that is less tangible than DEI efforts because it is something that is in the control of the people who are underrepresented. People know when they belong. It's kind of like, you know, people used to say the definition of obscenity is that people know it when they see it. Um, the definition of belonging, very similar to the definition of discrimination for that matter, is that it's something that is understood from the perspective of the people involved. It's not something that's necessarily fully within the control of others in well-represented groups. Um, and I say that in the case of discrimination because people may not perceive microaggressions. They may not perceive stereotyping people, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. And that is something that we very much recognize in DEI efforts and trying to make places more inclusive but belonging, coming to a place and really feeling like that is your place rather than a place that you have been invited to um, and a place that, you know, is somewhat under your control um, as, a, as an active participating member in that place. That, that is, I think, just vital. And we're still very focused on the first three elements. The first three elements are very important. Um, I will leave to others the uh, power and justice portion that we're not mentioning here, because I feel like people should lead that discussion who are involved very much in dealing with race. Um, and from the standpoint of importance, I just think belonging can't be under underrated. Um, and a lot of the times that's the portion that we don't really get. Yeah. And there are probably a lot of people listening who know what it feels like to not be to not belong in a place, um, maybe to a different extent, of course, depending on who you are and what your experience is. But um, the feeling of not belonging is uncomfortable at best. And um, it's like, oh, okay, I can be in this room, but nobody really, it's not like they really care if I'm here or not. And that feeling of just being embraced by a place and the people in it is one of the best feelings on the planet and something that everybody should should have a right to and be able to go and look for. And that really, I think, brings into perspective like how much this has to do with well-being, not just of, of people in the gender diverse community, but people who they work with. Everybody is going to be happier and healthier if they're a team that all feels like they belong. Right. I absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, one of the things that's oft cited um, in corporate discussions of DEI work is that teams are more productive when they're more inclusive. And I think that's very much true. Uh, but I, I want to circle back to something that I said about 20 minutes ago, which is I said that I have, uh, significant hope that the profession will continue to be a, a more inclusive place. I want to say that there's one caveat in that, and that's why it's important to kind of get to the belonging piece, which is that unless we actively go out and we build a pipeline whereby more people from underrepresented communities can end up being represented within the profession by being in, by being there full stop, whether that's coming through vet tech school or coming through veterinary school or people who are being brought up into management positions and stuff along those lines, unless we make those efforts, that belonging piece will never happen because people will always be the one queer person in the room or they'll always be, you know, 
the one person from that particular underrepresented minority. And then, yes, it does feel very difficult to belong. Yeah, that's a very, uh, very good point. It's like, you know, probably rooms that used to just have one woman in them, um, as we're talking about gender equality. And in a short, relatively short time, we've become a profession that is um, very much predominantly identifying as female. And that happened so so quickly in the grand scheme of things. And um, it would be wonderful to be able to see that happen um, with the gender diverse community also that we um, quickly and, and generously, you know, decide that we are all not just going to be tolerant, but go out and look for ways to invite people in so that right. everybody can feel more comfortable. And I, I, I love that image in my head of just like, the arms of the profession reaching out and saying, this is a place for you. Like you belong here. Come work with us. We want to work with you. Um, I just love that because we have a lot of heart in this community. Um, we have big hearts for our patients. And sometimes I wonder if we need to turn them a little bit more to ourselves. <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't have put that better. I think that in so many different ways, we're learning that the piece that is missing from veterinary medicine is that we have failed to recognize that we're all people. Mm -hmm. You know, we have um, put output as such a giant priority, whether you're talking about output for research or output for teaching or output for production of things coming through the door that we've forgotten about the fact that this is also um, a profession that operates entirely by humans. There are no trained dolphins that are running this profession. Um, this is, this is a human run profession. And as part of that, we have to deal with each other as people. And so when people say that our efforts on DEI are wasted efforts and we should be focusing on the animals, I think they should look around them and realize the rate at which people are exiting the field, mm -hmm. having suicidal ideation in the field you know, having to take long absences from their jobs. And maybe they should think a little bit more about the fact that there might be multiple different problems that are leading to that in the first place. We need to care for ourselves as a profession. And although DEI work is not explicitly part of well-being, certainly people's well-being is improved by being in a, an atmosphere in which they feel that they belong. Um, I, I wanted to mention something because earlier we were talking about um, gender equity. I hope you don't mind if I go back to Please that. Please do. Mm -mm. And I know that you had asked uh, the week before about um, what position people are in for the gender diverse community. And I think that it's difficult because for non-binary people, a lot of people simply don't, they don't understand what non-binary means. Um, they either want to make it something that's totally androgynous or they want to conveniently um, not think about it. Um, and, you know, what that leads to is a lot of people being misgendered or simply having their gender identity ignored because people don't understand what the experience would be like for a non-binary person. And so I feel like um, the book is kind of open a little bit as to what's going to happen with non-binary people because I think people just don't know, they, they don't understand enough. Um, and until there are a lot more non-binary people, which is going to be difficult if people don't recognize them and accept them, um, it's going to be hard for people's perspectives to change. It is awfully hard, as you said before, to be the, the one person in an area that anybody's ever met who's non-binary. Um, the same can be said for trans people, but the difficulty for non-binary people is that the second that they utter their pronouns, there's sort of a target on their back. Um, and people can immediately make a judgment as to whether they're going to ignore that or not. That is not always the case for trans people. Um, so, you know, I think the difficulty for trans people is that frequently they are exposed to biases against the gender that they were or the sex that they were assigned at birth. Um, and then they're also exposed to biases for um, their, their gender 
identity now. And so sometimes they end up getting the worst of both worlds. I mean, my husband has really struggled because to, to give you an example, um, before he transitioned, he was exposed to significant discrimination um, in his art program. He wasn't allowed to have a sculpture studio. Um, he wasn't allowed to finish out his degree in sculpture because it was just a very um, sexist group of people. Um, now, being working on sort of you know, uh, transgender rights, um, he frequently gets the flip side of things and gets told to be quiet because he's a man and he shouldn't be commenting on things. And it's like, well, yes, he's a man and he's also born two children and is also a parent and was, was also exposed to years and years of sexism and discrimination prior to transitioning. So he can't win either way. Um, and for trans women, a lot of the times they're simply not recognized as being women in spaces. Um, and that, that is something that, you know, the, the uh, hate that is out there has really sort of coalesced around discrimination against trans women. Um, and they have taken just an incredible amount of abuse, both verbally and physically, and unfortunately, um, there are also many trans women, particularly trans women um, who are from the Black and Latinx community um, who end up being murdered every year. So, you know, as far as figuring out what does gender equity look like for people within the gender diverse community, I think we need more time. I think we also need um, an environment that actually accepts people for who they are. Um, and I don't think that we're there yet. Um, I think that the Gender Identity Bill of Rights is an excellent first step in helping people to just kind of stop feeling like they're sinking. Um, but the goal needs to be more than treading water. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think that's why we've placed an emphasis on saying, okay, you know, great, let's get this part done. And also we need to try to keep pushing people up um, and trying to get them to the point where they feel like, they're not just floating, but, you know, they're, they're starting to, to get up and, and be able to be present. It seems like there's a big gap between like signing, signing the bill of rights is, is wonderful. And like you said, a good step, but there's a big gap between signing it and then creating a space that is not only safe, but also allows you to be who you are and say, okay, your experiences count and I want to know about them. Um, and I, that, that gap I'm sure is a variable size depending on who you are and where you work and all the things, how comfortable people feel about revealing themselves. Um, but I was just wondering, you know, at a systemic level, as as an ecosystem, um, what are some things that our community can do to bridge that gap between the signing, which is wonderful, and and the belonging? So I think that um, honestly, education is a tremendous first step, um, and education has to be more than you know, something that you did at one point in time. Um, it has to be continuing to learn where you can. And not everyone can learn everything all the time. We all recognize that we have our limits. Um, but being willing to, you know, hear something and go, huh, that wasn't something that I understood before. I'm going to read a little bit more about that and try to educate myself. The other thing that I think people have to do is they have to be willing to make mistakes and occasionally get called out on those mistakes and learn and grow. And if people are not able to say, I'm sorry that I did that, learn from those things and move on, then I think it's very difficult for things to improve. The other thing is um, that people have to start looking around them and saying, if I don't see gender diverse people in this space, you know, if I don't see black queer people in this space, if I don't see, you know, Latinx trans women in this space, 
Um, and I know that these people exist in my community. Um, why am I not seeing them on this committee? Why am I not, you know, why am I not going to big conferences and hearing talks from, you know, people who are, um, you know, neurodiverse and non-binary, you know, intersectional individuals within the community. Um, if people don't educate themselves and build and bring people in and bring people up, then it's very difficult to move forward. Thank you for that, because I think that's something we can all take and use um, on a systemic level. You know, the systems are made up of us. Um, and so each of us doing those things where we can will make a difference. Um, and I also wanted to just we were talking about this ourselves. We have a um, DEIB committee at AHA, um, and which I'm on, and we were talking about this, where it's important to have, you know, to, when you're looking for speakers to come to your event, somebody who's, say, neurodiverse and non-binary doesn't have to come and speak about being neurodiverse and or non-binary. Right. If that's what they want to speak about, great. But, sure. um, but the whole point of diversity is having a diverse body of voices talking about a diverse body of things and oh, not just pigeonholing people. And I think oh, yeah. we've been really good about that <laughs> so far, um, about saying, okay, we need somebody who you know, looks a certain way or identifies a certain way to come and talk about this issue. But, you know, maybe they could come and talk about internal medicine. <laughs> that would right. be cool. Uh, yeah, that, that would be cool. And, you know, I think that that circles back to the fact, um, and I was actually saying this on a, a call that I was on this morning, that, you know, there's like 25 or 30 people that are pretty much the same at almost every conference in the United States talking about DEI stuff. Yeah. Um, and when people are working on advocacy stuff, they're in very high demand. And also, you know, one of the things in the gender identity bill of rights is having the right to not have to advocate for yourself all the time Yeah, to have other people advocating for you. Um, and I think that that's absolutely essential. You know, there, there have to be people who have the understanding and training to, um, to take that load off. So I'm going to ask you another question I didn't tell you I was going to ask you, but it just came up in my mind because um, I'm thinking about what it means to be a good ally, um, which I'm sure is broadly defined. I'm sure there's a lot of ways to be an ally, but um, do you think that allies can speak about these issues without having lived that experience if they're speaking uh, on behalf of and as advocates for versus in place of um, individuals who do have that lived experience. So like, could I do a lot of reading and learning and listening and then go and speak about something because I feel strongly about it as an ally? So I think that provided that caveats are in place, that you are an ally speaking on this issue, absolutely. Um, because the difficulty is that there are currently not enough people who are speaking up. Um, and sometimes the message from one person may be exactly the same as the message from the other person. But if the other person comes from a highly represented group, them standing up and saying, hey, yeah, you know, I, I read this and, um, you know, I have... Um, friends who've been struggling to make it in this field. And these are my thoughts on that. Like, I think provided that people understand the context that you're coming from and provided that your discussion doesn't displace others who want to speak, um, who are from that community, then I absolutely think that that is very essential. That advocacy is, is absolutely essential um, but I do want to say something that, again, I also said several weeks ago in a talk, which is that I think that, you know, the, the phrase ally is a verb resonates a lot with me um, because ally is not, it's not a ribbon that you can wear or a bumper sticker. It's something that requires an effort every single day. But also as far as being an ally to the gender diverse community right now, um, 
we're at a point in time at which being an ally means being willing to be a little bit bruised because we're really beyond the point where we can simply have allies that, that say things that are helpful. Um, we need people who are really being willing to put some skin in the game. And there are going to be times when this is very uncomfortable. There are going to be times when it feels like there is some risk involved with being an ally, because those are the times that we live in. But like many other times that have come before where there has been risk in helping communities that were underrepresented, that risk is not forgotten. That the taking those risks is not forgotten. And it's it's important to remember too that sometimes the risk is speaking up in a quiet room um, when yep. you notice something, and that, in the grand scheme of things, is not a big risk. Um, so, it's something that um, I was going to ask you. You know, we talked about just uh, what what the community could do, what we needed to do on a systemic level um, to change things and to move them forward. And I was going to ask you on an individual level, what somebody listening right now, um, regardless of their role in their practice could do um, to move the needle and not, not have to prepare for it, not have to do anything, but have listened to this conversation and want to want to do it. And that seems like it's one thing is you could speak up when maybe you would have been quiet before. I think that if you're in states where people are affected by legislation um, that is having a direct impact on them, being willing to say, are you okay? Is there anything that I can do to help? I think taking a minute to read the Gender Identity Bill of Rights and sign it if you're willing to sign it, taking a minute to see what the benefits are in your company and if gender affirmation benefits are not offered, um, being willing to say, hey, I, I just wanted to inquire, is this something that isn't listed or is it something we're not offering? And if not, why? Um, you know, taking a moment to intervene when somebody says a remark that's transphobic or homophobic. And I realized that you know, we haven't been talking about homophobia. That's a totally different subject. But casual transphobia happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Correcting someone when they don't use someone's pronouns correctly. And that, that may not be transphobic. That may be just a mistake. Um, you know, being willing, if a client is harassing someone at work, to say, hey, you know, we respect this person. And this is, you know... This is, you know, our vet tech, Sandy, and her pronouns are she, her. You know, being willing to to take those steps is incredibly important. Just never forgetting that people are other human beings and um, remembering to treat them in the way that they've said they want to be treated. And that's actually something that I I just saw that as the, the platinum rule in... Um, something that um, Dr. Latonia Craig just came out with from the Journey for Teams. And I should actually say Journey for Teams is an excellent resource that you should go and look up. Um, But I I like this idea of the platinum rule of treating somebody like they would want to be treated. That that is really a a great thing to focus on. I love that. And um, yeah, Journey for Teams, I think just came out with a new module like yesterday or something. Um, Yep. That's at AVMA. Um, And they also have the Brave Space certificate uh, program, which I actually am in the middle of right now and is really good. Um, Lots of good information in there. And um, I and they're both free. uh, And we'll put links in the show notes to this uh, episode, as well as to Pride BMC and the Gender Identity Bill of Rights. Um, and, you know, I think all of that, all of those resources are just, they're there, they're waiting. Um, so if you haven't checked them out, please do go. Because this is such an important conversation, and it is just beginning. Um, and I really appreciate you and you taking so much time and also just being so candid and willing to be personal and, and say the stuff that no one really wants to hear 
You know, no one wants to hear that people are unhappy and it's so easy to ignore in our little bubbles. Um, but we can't, we can't do it. It's, it's, these are our people. And I, I, I really appreciate that. I think that's actually a, a good way to kind of close out the conversation is that, um, and I, I know that you said this earlier, but I think that people don't realize how many gender diverse people they know, mm-hmm. um, and care about already. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, you and Wolf. Um, it's been a pleasure and an honor, and I learned a lot today. And so I know that people listening will have learned too. Please check out the links in the show notes and um, definitely get in touch with me at podcast at aha.org. If there are resources that we mentioned that I don't link to, or you have more questions, I will make sure that I get them to the right person or the right place um, to get answered because um, this is too important and we all have to continue do our part to continue the conversation. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode of central line, the aha podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review for more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine. We invite you to visit aha.org. That's A A H A dot O R G.